Thank you for joining Downstate Abbey. I appreciate all of you who take time to listen. This is certainly a chance for us to hear from different people in different walks of life about things that are of concern to us as New York citizens. I have the honor and privilege of um, being a bit of a medium for some of you who are listening to hear from a gentleman um, who serves our community very well, Sheriff Giardino has agreed to talk to us today, has graciously offered up some of his time and perspective to allow for us to hear some of the things that are concerning to us regarding bail reform, regarding the COVID-19 jailbreak, and a number of things that some of you have expressed concern over to me. And so I'm going to invite Sheriff to join us today, and we, we really do appreciate your time today, sir. I know it's very valuable, so thank you for joining us. Well, thank you very much for uh, giving me the opportunity to speak to your listeners. I appreciate it. Well, thank you for that. And I, I want to bring us back to about a year ago. About a year ago is about the point where I, as a just a citizen, as a human being, as a mother, as a woman, became very, very alarmed at what was about to erupt in New York State with Governor Cuomo signing a bail reform that was and continues to be profoundly, profoundly flawed in so many ways. Um, I've read to my listeners before the 200 plus crimes that are listed on this bail reform. I won't take time to do that today, but there are some incredibly troubling crimes listed on this bail reform that, in my opinion, tie the hands and basically put a target on the back of law enforcement because they render them unable to do their jobs. It creates a catch-and-release crime culture, rape culture, that really erodes justice and, in my opinion, puts communities in grave danger. I, I would just like to hear your opinion of this reform, perhaps what you've seen in the community that you live and serve in. Um, so if you could just share that with us today. part of the entire package that went into effect. Um, and it, they modified bail pretty quick because some of the things that were not covered were sex offenses invo uh, involving young children, sharing uh, pornographic photographs. They were not included. Basically, what it does is take all misdemeanors, violations, and nonviolent felonies and says there will be no cash bail. They are going to be given appearance tickets. Violent felonies and some others can have three forms of bail, but they don't allow cash. They want you to have a property bond, uh, partial security with a bail bondsman. Um, cash as an alternative in very few cases. Um, the law was poorly conceived without input from either district attorneys, sheriffs, chiefs of police, or anyone else in law enforcement. Uh, at the same time, I was on a justice task force, and the justice task force was comprised of people in judges, lawyers, defense attorney, prosecutors, law enforcement, and, and we made certain recommendations, including a public safety component, so that if an individual were to get in a fight with his spouse and injure her, but not serious enough to make it a violent felony, we wanted to have some bail set as public safety to protect her. They, they would not adopt that component. So same thing with multiple individuals out in the community who are multiple offenders, uh, they get released. I'll give you a, the best example of this, and uh, New York City is seeing an incredible rise in the homicides yes. and shootings. Yes. And they arrested, the first week of September, they arrested 167 individuals, 
first week of September on felony gun charges. Within one day, over 100 were released with no bail. Uh, they were released without bail, just sent out on a parent's tickets. Um, within one week, there were only 49 individuals still incarcerated. And within three weeks, they were down to less than 20 people incarcerated from the 167. Now, the fact that they're carrying around loaded firearms without a permit and for no lawful purpose, and they repeat release them onto the streets, is just, just one of the shows you how poorly conceived this was. I am horrified to read that, and I do I do try to really keep up on some downstate um, news outlets because I don't see where it's really well communicated to the people up here just how bad the state of affairs is in these more urban communities, and I, I think it's just terrifying. I mean, New York City Cathedral, the shooting that happened a couple days ago, that guy was a frequent flyer in the judicial system, probably had no business being out, you know, shows up with a couple... Uh, you know, automatic firearms, just randomly shooting people. He ends up killed by police. But but like you said, the catch and release is what is so terrifying to me. Um, I mean, one of, I, I want to, there's so much we could talk about about the bail reform. And I know you have a limited time today. So I, I, I really want to talk a little bit too about what's been going on with releasing inmates it, with the concern that they could catch COVID-19 in prison. You know, this COVID-19 jailbreak is, it's very troubling to me because if the masks work, why not mask the inmate population? If there are ones who fall under certain criteria, such as above the age of 55, hypertension, diabetes, whatever, why not sequester them in an area to keep them, you know, less vulnerable from contracting it? But when we have situations like a former Osama bin Laden henchman being released because he's too obese to survive coronavirus behind bars, I mean, this just, this happened in in New Jersey, I believe, um, well, it was a Manhattan federal judge who agreed that he needed to be released. And this is a guy who helped carry out an attack that killed 228 people. So we have that. We have a guy who, one of the first ones to be released downstate was a man by the name of Pedro Vinent Barcia, who slashed a woman to death on a city street with multiple witnesses and surveillance footage caught him doing it. He was one of the first ones released on, I believe it was March 27th. So what, what's your take on what's being done and how does the public find out, you know, what inmates are being released, what they were in for, where they're being released to? Uh, what is, what's your perspective on that situation? Well, you got to go back in history and look at how all this happened. For years, 40 years, we had a Republican state Senate and the Republican state Senate would block a lot of these progressive extreme bills and nobody heard about them because they got blocked by the Senate. And so when the Senate lost control by the Republicans. Now, scarily, it's now a veto-proof majority of Democrats in both the Senate and Assembly. So basically what that tells us is that there's nobody stopping these ridiculous uh, bills being passed into law. And when you have a democratically controlled Assembly, Senate, and the governor's office, it's a, there's a recipe for disaster. I have to step back and also explain that, that there was some misleading ads and statements when they pass bail reform. But first of all, as a sheriff, as a former judge, and as a former DA, I agree that you need bail reform. Yes. But I think two things were, were misleading. One, they said that, oh, we have to let people out of jail so they can go back and that they can support their families, work their jobs, or go to school. 
Well, the vast majority of repeat offenders who were in front of me in 20 years as a judge were not supporting their family, they weren't working a job, and they weren't going to school. The vast majority were, were out on the streets committing crimes or, or had you know multiple warrants out for them. So what they should have done is allowed the fact that if you're in school, if you're supporting your family, or if you're working, those are factors that we used to be able to take into account that showed that they were connected to the community. Mm-hmm. But they removed those elements. And when I asked the state to tell me, I asked DCJS to tell me how many people that are arrested and placed out on bail had jobs. Oh, we don't have those figures. You know, how many people are supporting their family? Oh, we don't have those figures. So it was very misleading because the concept sounds great. People should be out supporting their families if they're doing that. People should be out working if they're doing that, you know? Right. Now, here's another part of it that you have to understand. They also use the false premise that, well, these people are innocent. They're presumed innocent, so there should, they shouldn't be incarcerated. Well, the presumption of innocence is a is a element that goes under the Constitution, Fourth and Fifth Amendment, and due process when you get to trial. So you're presumed innocent after you're arrested or indicted. You're still presumed innocent, and that's only removed when you either plead guilty or you're convicted at trial. So they, they said, oh, they're in jail, but they're already assuming they're guilty. No. The purpose of bail under the Eighth Amendment has always been to ensure their return. And as we know, a lot of people don't come back if there's no reason financially to come back. I don't, I don't want to spend too much time on bail because I know that you have a lot of other questions, but it's a nightmare and they only change and it's going to get worse. And I'll tell you why in a few minutes, why things are going to get worse. I, but ask me some other areas you're curious about. Well, I'd love for you to kind of just keep that momentum and tell us how you think it's going to get worse, because I think people need to be aware of the kind of, you know, Pandora's box that we're opening with this. So please go, go right ahead into your, where your thoughts were leading you just now. Well, today, and you'll read about it tomorrow and you'll hear about it on tonight's news. The Democrats and advocate groups in the legislature are proposing a justice roadmap for 2021. And I neglected to send you this yesterday but I, I, because I didn't have time. Oh, sure. I will send it to you after we're done speaking. So it starts out, we are criminal justice and immigration justice advocates directly impacting people's lives, legal services providers, and faith leaders who stand uniting a belief that it's a critical moment in our history. And they they want to take some steps to, and and it's based on a lot of false premises. But what they want to do this year is they they want to end qualified immunity for law enforcement. So if I'm a police officer and I have a warrant signed by a judge and I enter the wrong house, I used to be immune from it because I had a warrant signed by a judge. So I was acting in good faith. They want to end qualified immunity so police could be personally sued. Hmm. Now, if I have to make a decision in a matter of seconds that's life-saving or life-ending, mm-hmm. I have to judge whether I want to take that risk and, and face loss financially of my home and my assets because I can be sued, sued um, individually. They also want a, uh, um, they, they want to uh, they want to regulate marijuana, tax it. They want to take the money from the marijuana sales and taxation and put it in the minority communities that were hardest hit by mar- by marijuana and other drugs. Well, again, that, that you know, it's designed to, to be a fundraiser, a money fundraiser, instead of other things. 
Now, I was a drug court judge for 18 years. They're proposing more treatment instead of jails. Well, here's something that you need to know. Bail was always used as a coercive tool to get people in drug treatment. So the whole premise of this, which was started by the Democratic Attorney General, Janice Reno, when she was a, a state's attorney in Florida, her and a judge came up with an idea that to identify those who commit crimes because they're either drug addicted mm-hmm. or they're on drugs at the time and funnel them into treatment. And in, in the treatment meant they had to go inpatient or outpatient, be monitored by a, a judge frequently, be drug tested. If they were rearrested or positive, they had to go back into rehab. Mm-hmm. So that's a very good concept. I was such a drug a judge who did drug court. Sure. But what they want to do now is raise the things from just individuals who are using the drugs or stealing for drugs to include a, a wider swath of individuals, thereby being an, an escape for individuals who should be in jail or prison. Um, the, what the bail connection is, if somebody got arrested and was incarcerated on bail, I could say to them, look, you're either going to stay in jail till we process your case, or we're going to put you in patient treatment and you're going to do drug court. And the vast majority of people would choose the drug court because they wanted to get out of jail. Sure. So, and, and it was well recognized because Janet Reno's no liberal. She was... You know, she was the, she's a Democratic, she's not a conservative, I mean, she's a Democratic Attorney General of the United States and a former state's attorney, and she realized the benefit of using bail to get people into treatment. Sure. That's gone now. The other thing you're going to see is they're go- they want to change the parole system where if you are 55 years old, uh, you should be considered for parole regardless of what your crime was. Oh, my Lord. Uh, Oh. And, and I'm going to send you this because you got to be kidding me. Oh. They want right to in-person visits in facilities. Now, now my mom is in a nursing home. Yes, let's she, talk about this. Yeah, we didn't get to visit her in, in the summer, which mm-hmm. let me ask you, does it make sense that if, if they're six feet apart with masks on, we should have been able to visit her outside? Certainly. And then when they gave us the rules in September, on a Wednesday, I was scheduled to visit on a Friday. Yeah. And they, they called me and said, well, you got to get a COVID test now. So so I've got to get a COVID test to visit my own mother in a nursing home. I've got to stay six feet away with a mask on. Yeah. So I don't know if she knows who I am. The only right. time she recognized me one out of four times. Uh-huh. And then if I have a family member in prison, guess what? I can go to prison. I can have a two-hour visit as opposed to a 20-minute a visit at the nursing home. I can have a two-hour visit with my family member in prison, and I don't have to show a negative test. I mean, it's ridiculous. And is and, there COVID and, testing being done on inmates? That's the next question. I don't know if there. I know they are COVID testing inmates, and I know that at the local facility, most of the tests were negative. They didn't have the spread, and most of the guards were negative. But um, I can't. I can say that for about a, a month ago. I can't say it now. The other thing they want to do is um, what they're doing is a lot of the bail was based on a case of a misdemeanor in New York City. Mm-hmm. And the judges in New York City are appointed. Yeah. Judges upstate are elected. So if I mess up or you don't like how I'm ruling, you can unelect me the next time and elect someone else. So they modified the whole system based on, on a few judges in New York City that didn't follow up on the cases. That's and, interesting. And the individuals being in. Um, in, in confined, in, in individual confinement. The other thing they, they want to do, and this has always bothered me. Wait one second. Let me yes, please. <laughs> this poor guy. <laughs> Sorry. 
Can all the mayhem in this county just chill so we can have a conversation, right? Always. Always. Another component is that they, they want to reunite families. Well, let me ask you, some of the people I dealt with as a judge, really, you don't want around your kids. You don't want a guy who's in a gang who's been arrested four or five times for drugs and guns actually being around children. That's not a positive role model. One wouldn't think, yes. Rehabilitated. Right. Um, so what they want to do is uh, a lot of things. They want to they allow family members in the lawyers to come right in when people are in the custody of the police, into the police station, into the booking rooms and things. There's a lot of safety reasons why we wouldn't do that. Um, they want to seal um, former crimes um, um, in large quantities. Now, here's something else you need to know. When we, when we arrest people, we take DNA. Or when they're convicted, we take DNA. We take fingerprints, and they go into a database. Now, if they start expunging or sealing records, we're going to lose a useful tool that would help us identify violent criminals or nonviolent criminals in the future because their fingerprints would be removed from the database, and so would their DNA. So there's a lot of things going on that people have to know about, and, and a lot of people don't pay attention. They're using this COVID, as you said, to empty the prisons. And, and, and to, to modify things while people aren't paying attention. For example, right now there's a state rule for parolees. If there's a technical violation, technical violations means a positive drug test, uh, or if we pick somebody up on parole but don't arrest them but they had drugs on them, they won't violate them on parole. And they won't violate them on parole because they don't have, they don't want to reincarcerate them with the possibility of COVID. So the only time they'll violate them is if there's a new arrest. So, so mm. there's what a mess. Know, what an absolute yeah, it's, mess. It's going to be worse. And people like myself, uh, as sheriffs, we have to speak up. District attorneys have to speak up, and the people have to know. Uh, the other area that I really want to talk about is we're doing this reform policing that the governor's directed mm. on every police agency in New York State except guess who? <laughs> the state police. Really? The okay. Three thousand members of the state police, and they don't have to do a reform plan, but everyone else does. We've got the most diverse police department in the country is New York City. It's thirty thousand law enforcement officers. They took one billion dollars away from them, ten percent of their budget, and they say, "Okay, you guys got to be better trained. You got to do better." Well, we can't do better if you take money or defund us. Um, law enforcement is at a critical juncture. The divide in this country is deeper and wider than it's ever been. Think of it this way, if you will. You're, you're demanding more and more of the police. Uh, law enforcement and the criminal justice system, more importantly, is the funnel that the failures of every other system go into. Mm. So, for example, if you as an individual can't control yourself and you don't follow the rules, you don't have good values, you end up in a criminal justice system when you commit a crime. Mm -hmm. So that's the failure of the individual. The failure of the family that is split up, doesn't know where their kids are, does not provide a positive role model, does not discourage drug use or other uh, violent, uh, uh, not violent, but other things that lead to criminality. The failure of the family, the failure of probation, the failure of the education system, the failure of the mental health system and DSS. They all fall into law enforcement. And in the last 25 years, they've asked us to do more and more, to be counselors, to be more trained in mental health. 
Well, you can't train a law officer in mental health in a six-month course in 12 to 16 hours. It's got to be additional training for that. Let me give you an example of the defund. If you take money away from the smaller agencies like my own, if I want to train people, I have to, if I take them off the road to train them for a day or a week, I have to have support to backfill them. Sure. For me, that means overtime money. So I can't mm-hmm. train people if I don't have money for overtime to backfill their slots. So, so that's part of it. But I wanted to go back to the defunding the police and mention something that's bothered me as a, as a sheriff and a DA and a judge. Um, right now, Teachers and educators have very difficult jobs with this COVID crap, and we sure, all do. Sure. But, but law enforcement, we had six months of rioting, protest, everyone be accusing the police of getting up in the morning and wanting to shoot young young men. That's not what police want to do. The last thing they want to do is kill anyone. And 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 then and then they said, okay, now we want police to go door to door and count how many people are in your home at Thanksgiving. Now, how smart is that when you're saying you're trying to get police to be more community friendly and more welcoming? <laughs> it's laughable. Yeah, yeah, it's laughable. Yeah, and I credit police in this country because we don't care what color you are, we don't care what your religion, your gender, uh, we don't care any of that. Your politics. When you call nine one one, we go. Yeah. And the same thing. If you're black, if you're brown, if you're white, you don't care what. You don't care if the police officer is white or black or green. You don't care their politics. You want a police officer. And we kept going all summer when everyone was throwing stuff at police, shooting at them, killing them, yeah. assaulting them, get even in some people's words. And yet we still answered the call. So right now, law enforcement is a pivotal moment. And instead of defunding and reforming, we have to. We, we have a lot of room to improve. We really do. But a lot of it's in training, and a lot of it is forward leadership. But I always commend the black and African-American officers because they join law enforcement to make a difference, and they get called, now you're blue, you're not black anymore. There's some suspicious among some white police officers still if you're a black officer. So they're in the worst possible position. They get attacked from both sides. Inside, they feel attacked. And they're trying to be the... The, the bridge builders, and yet they, they have to take it from both sides. And what's really been sad to me as a professional in the criminal justice system is watching in the last six months, do you know how many black and brown female and male police chiefs have left their jobs because they were fired, they resigned or retired because of the pressures? We've lost over 36 of them across the country. Now, these are the people you need in the management spots who can bridge the gap. And it's very sad to me to see that happening when we need them. Absolutely. And I think it is so counterproductive for really, to a very large extent, communities of color, in my opinion, are victimized by this bail reform, by the COVID-19 jailbreak, especially because the majority of the time, these are areas that are more heavily crime-ridden. The drug trade is the tyrant that rules all the neighborhoods. So why in the world would anyone in their right mind put hardened criminals who should be incarcerated to protect themselves and others back into these communities where if a child does aspire to be a cop, they're viewed as being a traitor, where if you know a child does aspire to make it out of the community, they're you know viewed as being a sellout. This, All of these policies do so much to damage, in my opinion, the black communities, the minority communities. I mean, what you should be encouraging these children to grow up and become an active part of law enforcement. And a lot of police agencies make efforts to do that, but 
they've got this undercurrent of let's keep throwing the drug dealers back out there. Let's keep basically victimizing these children. Domestic violence calls, this catch and release nonsense with the bail reform makes me sick. I mean, how many kids are home from school now watching mom, you know, get 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 tossed around the apartment every day by the boyfriend? And if she calls, she knows he'll probably be given a ticket and probably be released. I mean, that this is my take on it. And I, from what you're telling us, I, I really wanted to be wrong about my perception of this, but apparently it's worse than I thought. And that's, that's disheartening. Um, it really is. But I, I really appreciate the perspective that you're giving us because people need to hear this for what it is. I mean, and, and, that, and I, I'm sorry, Abby, I have to, if I don't tell you this. No, please I, go. I would, I would be remiss. In New York City, over 95% of the victims of homicides are black or brown. In New York City, over 93% of the people who are committing the homicides are black or brown. Right. So what what area needs police? The, yeah. the communities that are black and brown need more police. And there's a phrase that always cracks me up. They say they're over-policed. Well, we in police departments, we don't police... Uh, when we say over-policed, we police to the statistics. If there's more crime in your neighborhood, we're going to go. Sure. You know? Sure. And most police officers that I know, they don't see people as white or black. They see people as victims, complainants, witnesses, defendants, suspects. They don't see them in color. They see them in category. Uh, the other thing that's very important is that this year, do you know how many 12-year-old black and brown kids have been shot, 12 and under, have been shot in drive-by shootings or, or uh, in the middle of gang involvement in, in, the, in the country? It's going to be sickening. I don't even want to guess. <laughs> I don't 60, want to. Over 60 12-year-olds and under have been shot and killed, black and brown kids across this country, in drive-bys or shootings in the cars or shootings on the street by thugs with guns. Right. Six, and, and, and last year, 2019, 10 unarmed black people were killed by police, and 20, or I'm sorry, 10 unarmed. But when you hear the stories or see the videos, you think it's happening every day. And they don't, they, the, we in law enforcement not do a good enough job of explaining tactics and methods. So, for example, in Seattle and Portland, the local councils banned pepper spray and they banned um, tear gas. Well, that leaves us with tasers, guns, and nightsticks. And everybody remembers the videos from the 1960s with police hitting people with nightsticks. Pepper spray and tear gas are less than lethal, and they help us as tools so that we don't have to use guns and batons. Sure. So we, we in law enforcement do a terrible job of educating the public and the lawmakers on the councils and the legislature on why we do what we do. And, you know, uh, unfortunately, you know, people, it doesn't matter who you are. If you get killed, whether at the hands of the police or your police officer gets killed, you have people who love you, family and friends, yeah. and it hurts. Of course. And, and so we have to recognize that. But by the same token, like the, the, the man who was killed in New York um, during a scuffle with the police because of Lucy's or cigarettes, yeah. people never heard the story. The story on that was that the, the mayor and the civilian authorities were telling the police to crack down on loose cigarettes because they're losing tax money. So the police shouldn't even been bothering them about loose mm. cigarettes. But they were ordered by the politicians to crack down on it because it was a, a ta they're losing tax money, and you don't hear about that. You know, it's it's, it's very sad to me 
that, that when you see these things happening across the country, everyone's a case-by-case basis. I think probably the most sickening one to me was, was the man in uh, North Charleston who got shot in 2015. Police officer shot him several times in the back, and a passerby had filmed it. And the man said, well, he, he had gone for my taser, but he was running away and he was too far to use the taser and he was running in the wrong direction. Hmm. And so that, that when the police officer shot him in the back, he actually shot 800,000 police officers in the back, hmm. you know? Yeah. Uh, very, and the other thing people don't know, we have 18,000 law, uh, law enforcement agencies in this country. Some are as small as one member and others 30,000, hmm. like New York. And we have... Tens of millions of contacts with the public every year, and, and we have 850,000 cops. And with the tens of millions, the ones that are ill, the police are unauthorized or bad police doing shootings or assaults is minimal. If any amount is bad and wrong, but my point is to portray that this is happening every day and certain communities are targeted is just not fair to the vast majority of decent law enforcement officers in the country. I agree, and especially when policies such as this bail reform make the job of law enforcement so much more dangerous than it should be and so much so demoralizing. I mean, I can't imagine kissing my kids goodbye, my husband goodbye, going to serve as a police officer and being forced to respond to the same address, you know, the same guy beating his wife, beating his kids, whatever, uh, you know, having to risk your or having to risk your life to go apprehend someone who misses their court dates. I mean, isn't that something that we're going to see happening, even though courts are so backed up, you know, everything because of COVID, because of COVID. But I mean, I see this as being a huge problem. I mean, how do you catch up with these people who are released on mere appearance tickets? Really? How? <laughs> Where do you begin? Yeah, you, we don't know yet because we've been too busy not arresting people. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. There's that. So I'm yeah. going to. I'm going to have to wrap it up. Yes. I'm sorry. No, I thank you for your time. Okay. And sometime I'll come back on if you want to do another topic or some more questions. We would love that. Thank you so much for all the insight you shared today. Thank you for the way you serve our communities and our families every day. Thank you very much. I really do appreciate it. Thank you, Sheriff. Right. Take care and God bless. Well, you know, there's a guy who for decades has served in various capacities within the legal system. You know, he served as a, a judge, a district attorney, a sheriff. I mean, you know, that's a well-rounded opinion. <laughs> I mean, honestly, and this guy is saying pretty much what, what we've been saying for months, which is this bail reform is truly, truly a disaster. There were some rollbacks of the bail reform back when the budget was crammed through in April, but none of them are substantial. They're almost an insult, honestly, because it basically says it gives a little more judicial discretion to a, to a few of those crimes. But when you look at this list of crimes that if imagine being a police officer and you're dealing with someone, especially if they're a frequent flyer, you know, you've dealt with them multiple times in your community and, you know, you you see that they're selling drugs to a child, criminal sale of a controlled substance to a child. And, and you know if you bring them into the station, they're going to get an appearance ticket. Okay. Imagine, you know, pick, pick another one, Abby. Just, like, let your finger land somewhere on the list. I mean, imagine public lewdness, okay? This happened over the summer, and I'm sure it's happened plenty of times in plenty of places, but one of them made it in the newspaper. There was a guy from, I believe it was Michigan. He was at a beach somewhere, I think, near Plattsburgh. Public lewdness, you know, ogling little girls playing in the water at the beach, and parents saw what he was doing, 
and called the police and were like, this is disgusting. You've got to get this guy out of here. And what did they have to do? They handed this creep an appearance ticket. He's from out of state. He's a registered sex offender in the state that he came from. This is what we're doing. I mean, it's disgusting in a world where the penalties for victimization of children are not heavy enough, in my opinion, not not at all. You know, you've got people that have raped children that get six year sentences and then they're out in half that time because of good behavior, because there weren't any children to rape in prison. So this is this is a disgusting abuse of the population by, I mean, quite honestly, Andrew Cuomo. He's the one that signed this into being even after people such as you know, the sheriff that we just heard from, who is a very intelligent guy. Apparently he and Cuomo went to the same law school. I wasn't aware of that. I'll have to fact check that, but I'm pretty sure that's what um, Sheriff Giardino said on a recent interview. So, you know, we're not talking about a guy who just has some biased opinion here and and has a loyalty that blinds him with bias to his side. This is a well-rounded perspective that's been offered here today. And and what's being done is wrong. It's so incredibly wrong. And I don't know about you, but I don't see crime diminishing in the world that we live in. I see addictions ramping up. And with that often comes crime. And that's another point about this bail reform that I've said over and over again. This is absolutely cruel for people who are performing crimes because of drug addiction, you know, fueled behaviors, it's absolutely cruel to just toss them back out onto the street where something more severe can be done or they can just self-destruct even further. If you have someone who is committing a crime that's addiction-fueled, addiction-based, and you have that chance to get them the help that they need, that is truly the most compassionate approach. This bail reform is its a steaming pile of, of, of nonsense. It's evil, in my opinion, because it truly takes the scales of justice and it tips it in favor of crime and it tips it in favor of the people that terrorize our communities. And it's not right. It's not right. It's not right that everyone who knows how bad it is, quite honestly, isn't taking a stronger stand because people such as, you know, Sheriff Giardino, who shared with us today, their days are full. He just gave us half an hour of his time and it was not easy to do that. You know, these are people that have jobs to do. They're trying to get the word out to communities as to what's going on. I guarantee, myself included, probably none of us had heard about those reforms that are coming down the pike, thanks to our Albany lawmakers. I hadn't heard about any of that. I think it's ridiculous that that someone's criminal record ever be sealed. If you've got somebody that has a propensity toward evil behavior, just you're just going to seal the records. That's it. You won't be able to look back on that moving forward at all. I mean, what do you? How does that make any sense? I understand the importance of a clean slate. I think we need to push harder for people who are incarcerated and had very unfair sentences levied on them. We need to advocate harder for them. Let them come out. Let them earn their way into taking ownership of their life and taking their life back. But that's not what's happening here. What's happening here is, like I said earlier, and I really wanted to devote most of the conversation, most of the time today to hearing from uh, Sheriff Giardino, because you know, his time is valuable. He was very limited in the time he was able to spend with us today. But I do hope, as he said, we'll be able to talk again. But when you look at what's happening, okay, Adele Abdel Berry, 60, spent 21 years in New Jersey prison for being part of the Al-Qaeda bombings of two U.S. embassies in Africa that killed 224 people, okay, including 12 Americans, because he's obese. Defendants' obesity and somewhat advanced age makes COVID-19 a significantly more risky 
threat to him than the average person. That's what U.S. District Judge Lewis Kaplan wrote as he granted release to this guy, who apparently, hmm, I guess he's, I guess he's out of the country now. I read something where it said that he was, he was in the United Kingdom now. His return to the United Kingdom couldn't be blocked because he was granted asylum there in 1997. Okay, great. So we have a guy who was responsible for the killing of 224 people, whether in part or in whole, whatever. You play a part in something like that? Come on. Why? So he, he's on the loose. Yeah, that, that's, that's justice. Great. Fantastic. Uh, let's go back to, I want to read this to you because this is one of the ones that made my blood boil. March 27th. A Manhattan judge ordered the release of a career criminal charged with stabbing his girlfriend to death. Let me just pause there and say, when you're being told by Governor Cuomo, when you're being told by anyone else that the only people being released from prison because of the threat of them contracting COVID-19 are nonviolent felons, you're being lied to. Period. You are being lied to. And I'm going to continue to read. State Supreme Court Justice Mark Dwyer freed Pedro Vinent Barcia, age 63, along with 15 other inmates after the Legal Aid Society filed a petition arguing that their detention exposed them to serious medical harm in the midst of a pandemic sweeping through city jails. Huh. Wouldn't it make more sense to have an area, uh, I don't know, maybe like a Brooklyn Field Hospital or an area in the Javits Center where you could take inmates who did in fact contract COVID-19 and treat them adequately? But no, let's just let them out because because that's justice, right? Come on. You, you people are smarter than this. I know you are. You see through this. I know you do. Please stay with me. Prosecutors objected, citing the brutality of the crime and the defendant's criminal record. Okay, so Assistant DA Patricia Bailey said that Vinent Barcia terrorized Bernice Rosado for months before tracking her to a cell phone repair shop in Harlem on June 29th of 2018 and repeatedly stabbing her in the chest and back killing her. Okay. Imagine if Bernice was your daughter, your wife, you know, your mother, your sister. Imagine she got tormented for months because this guy was tracking her, stalking her, and finally ambushes her outside of a cell phone repair shop in Harlem. The gruesome attack was captured on surveillance video and witnessed it by numerous bystanders, according to court papers. After cops nabbed him, he allegedly asked, is she dead? I hope so. And then the prosecutor went on to say that Vinent Barcia was also arrested in Florida for stabbing another girlfriend in 1993 and biting off a part of her ear. Yeah, he's on the loose. Where is he now? Cuomo, where, where is he now? Where is he now? Really? Andrew Cuomo, tell me that, you know, we're so New York safe, New York smart. Where is this guy now that bites off women's ears and slashes them to death? Really? Was he tested on the way out? Is he being tracked on any level? Has he gone upstate? Is he living up here? Where is he? Really, where is he? These are the questions you need to be asking your governor, people. And keep in mind that also in Harlem, okay, we're talking about largely communities of color here. So anyone who wants to stand up and advocate for these communities, now's the time to do it because back in March, there was a fire that killed an MTA conductor named Garrett Goebel. And this guy, I'm going to keep saying his name until he gets the recognition he deserves because he kissed his wife and his two beautiful baby boys that morning and went to work as he had so faithfully for so many years prior and basically left them for the last time that morning because he died on the job because an individual who apparently still hasn't been apprehended. I thought that this 
person, Nathaniel Avenger, has actually had actually been apprehended, but apparently not. He has he's seen in surveillance footage near the Harlem subway that morning. And I don't know beyond that <laughs> what happened, except he and another guy are seen going into the subway. There's a there, there's evidence pointing to an intentional fire being started. Okay, there's a shopping cart that was charred, so obviously somebody wheeled something in there intending to blow up the whole the whole subway because after it took off, the, the place went up in flames. If you look at the pictures online and see how charred and melted the interior is, these people that started this fire had every intention of every single person on that on that subway being burnt alive that morning. The only thing that kept that from happening was the courageous acts of Garrett Goebel. He let every single one of his passengers out, made sure they were safe, and then he died. And never, never got Father's Day with his kids this year, never got Thanksgiving, will not get Christmas, will not ring in the new year with his beautiful family the way that he should be. Okay, I mean, we have with this bail reform, they're letting these people that have propensities toward being pyromaniacs out. You're seeing it happen where they they attack mass transit. Average people who are just trying to get to work every day are terrified because they don't know if if their bus is going to get blown up, if somebody's going to open fire on their subway. It's literally insanity because uh, speaking of opening fire, New York City Cathedral shooting a few days ago. Okay, there was a guy who showed up around 345 on Sunday. There was a concert going on in front of the cathedral St. John the Divine and the gunman who police say was heavily armed was seen firing an unknown number of shots okay two senior officials identified the gunman as Louis Vasquez a native of the Dominican Republic with an extensive criminal record he was already wanted for an incident of menacing with a gun from this past summer but prior to that Vasquez had a record of assault attempted murder fraud and drug crimes going back more than 30 years he shot at police in 1989, probably a lot you know, more frequently than that, but he was convicted of attempted murder in 89. He did some time in prison, okay? But this guy, <laughs> you know, semi-automatic weapons, just comes out, guns blazing. Thank God police were there. Thank God. Thank God, because they did, in fact, kill him on site and, and no one else was harmed. This is the stuff that's going on, though. And like Sheriff Giardino said, I mean, look at the number of arrests for illegal firearms crimes and then look at the proportion of people just being let right back out. Really, it's disgusting. It's absolutely disgusting. It is such an affront to responsible gun ownership. It, it's it's tragic. It is it's blasphemous, really, for a governor who's claiming to care about keeping New Yorkers safe, literally creating this anarchy in which police can't even retain people who are committing violent crimes. It's it's absolutely preposterous. And so I just want to encourage each and every one of you to stay connected. I mean, I, I don't know. I feel like I'm waking up in a nightmare morning because every morning, I, I find the news, and I actually I have the New York Post delivered on my doorstep because I honestly think they're one of the few media outlets that actually report what's going on downstate and without really sugarcoating it. And there's far worse things that never make the news, but they give us a really good snapshot as to what's happening. You're not going to find it on the major news outlets. You're just not. I've looked for it, and you've really got to dig for it. This is so wrong. So I ask you to keep in touch 
on the Downstate Abbey Facebook page. Go to cancelcuomo.com because it outlines some of the major concerns that I and I believe I speak for millions of other New Yorkers when I say that our leadership is downright treacherous right now. The fact that people such as Sheriff Giardino spoke out long before this bail reform went into effect and said, you know, very eloquently, I'm sure, these are the reasons why this bail reform is going to be an epic failure. These are the reasons why this bail reform needs to be rethought and recrafted because it's going to be a disaster. And these are the reasons why you're going to jeopardize our communities. This is how. And it fell on deaf ears. It completely fell on deaf ears. I mean, it, it's absolutely repulsive that we have people being paid by the taxpayers who are putting forth laws and mandates that are actually jeopardizing the lives of the taxpayers. Your children are not safe in this state. They're not. Pedophiles have more rights right now than hardworking business owners. Drug dealers have more of an ability to continue to make their living than people who, who are running multi-generational businesses and are watching it all fade away in a matter of months. This is not right. It's not right that people that get up every day and go and protect our communities are really, they're in the crosshairs. They really are. And, and nothing's being done to stop it. And we have more horrible laws coming you know, down the pike. Wait for it. Wait for it. Look what they're trying to do. And uh, meanwhile, nothing is being done to truly advocate for people who find themselves caught up in, in lifestyles of crime, largely because of dysfunction that they grew up in. Nothing's being done to break this cycle. Nothing. We're just seeing more and more destruction and anarchy at every turn. So I ask each and every one of you, please keep in touch. Please reach out. Please join the community at cancelcuomo.com, at Downstate Abbey on Facebook. And I would love to hear from any of you who have connections within law enforcement. Perhaps you yourself work in law enforcement. People need to start hearing the stories of the people on the ground who are living through the hell that's created by these horrible, horrible laws. And and voices are not being heard that need to be heard. So I, I'm begging. You. I will do anything I can to create a means by which your voice can be heard because people are listening. It's just a matter of creating that dialogue, letting people know what's really happening, and quite honestly, making every effort to take our state back. I love you all. Do something amazing today. Yeah.